Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Welcome to How to Pakistan once again. Um, we're testing a new technology. It's called ambient sound. And so hopefully you'll hear a lot of uh, disruptions, <laughs> a lot of things that you shouldn't be hearing. This is a deliberate ploy. We're very much like the Pakistan army. You think that, uh, you know, something else is happening, but actually something else, something else is happening. Um, delighted to join, uh, to join and to be joined by someone else, and that someone else, of course, is the legendary Fasi Zaka. How you doing, Fasi? Good, thank you. And uh, it's uh, good to uh, be back on the podcast. Uh, today we've got a really uh, great guest. It's uh, Essen Bus, who's an assistant professor at George Mason University, does a lot of work on South Asia international relations. On top of that, he's got uh, a very popular blog, which was run with a number of people called Five Rupees. And he's also done a blog recently, which uh, it's quite a stir. So it's great to have uh, Essen Bus on the program. Great. Thanks for having me, guys. It's really good to be here. Essen, uh, I mean, you've uh, you're a Chicago PhD, uh, which makes you, you know, a rare breed among among Pakistanis because you're you're well educated. <laughs> um, so uh, you know, I mean, I'm just excited to have you here. Tell us something really smart. Uh, <laughs> wow, that's a lot of pressure. That is a lot of pressure. You're, let, let's start with with something light. The the baseball season is uh, is just kicking into uh, baseball season. <laughs> so so Essen, of course, I I know, I know Essen personally as well, uh, Fuzzy, and Essen uh, is a big fan of of the American sports, particularly basketball. He's a huge basketball fan, um, and he's a big football fan. I would and say only basketball, actually, of the American sports, only basketball. You see, this is the this is the problem. Essen has to argue about everything, and so when you said we should bring him on, I told you, I'm not sure we should bring him on because he's going to argue every point. He's into this whole academic thing called evidence and accuracy, and I don't know. This is how to Pakistan, man. You know, it's stupid. Uh, it, it is, it is. Uh, tell us about the basketball season. It hasn't started yet. I watched the Toronto Raptors in uh, preseason uh, beat the crap out of the Golden State Warriors. It was wonderful viewing. Cal Lowry, he's all <laughs> over the place. Uh, uh, the preseason doesn't mean much in the NBA. Uh, I don't think the preseason... Tell me you think the Raptors are not a good team. No, I think they're a good team. They're a good team. I think they're a good me team. Me and Essen finally agree on one thing. I think they're a good team. Okay. They took, they took two, two games off the Cavs last... Yeah, last, it was it was a yeah, big deal. Which is more than anyone yeah, else in the East. Exactly. So, exactly. Uh, yeah, so they're the they're the almost beasts of the East. They're, they're the they're the they're first amongst the second tier, I would say, in the East. So. You're a big cricket man as well. Yes. Yes. And what's the deal with cricket? Are we really as good as I think we are right now? I don't know how you how good you think we are right now. I think we're not as good as number one in everything for sure. But oh, beating you mean the test West, matches. Yeah, I think we're really good in test matches. I think we're really good. What happens when Mispa retires? Uh, hopefully, we bring in a batsman who can do as good a job, in my opinion. His name is Fawad Adam. But uh, oh, move. okay. So here we go. Now we finally have. So you have. You're like a very. You're a geographist. You 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 discriminate on the basis of geography, just like Fussy. <laughs> I mean, I don't discriminate. I think the guy. Um, I think the record is that he has like the third or fourth highest first class average of pretty much anyone in history, like across like all countries. So that's nothing to sneeze at. Uh, I think he can score runs in the middle order. 
uh, in a lot of conditions. Uh, we're going to miss Misbah's captaincy for sure and his sort of like sort of overlord ways like in the way he sort of manages people and manages expectations and talks to the media and all this stuff like he's just a very mature guy and like I think we're really going to miss that but as a batsman I think we have one or two guys who could maybe hopefully step up I'm looking forward to that Fussy uh, one of the reasons that you know we you, you mentioned this at the top one of the reasons we wanted Essen uh on the on the podcast was to talk about his recent uh, piece I think for the uh, business uh, standard um, and it's obviously dealing with what I think is current and what for how to Pakistan is well for Pakistan in general is a pretty important issue which is the relationship with India um, what did you think of the piece Fussy? I thought it was really good and uh, just um you know, just a quick question, I guess, just to set things going, is, um, you know, I, I, I'm going back to the blog piece, I mean, there was this one little section in it where you said that if you were to put yourself in the prime minister's position, what would you do? Realistically, I mean, what is it that India can do with Kashmir or can expect from Pakistan's side, just as a, large, as a largely intractable problem? So, I, so realistically, what can a civilian leader do in, in like 2016 with India? Is that your question? Yes. Man, not much. I mean, I like. I think we're seeing sort of the. Evidence, <laughs> I, I think we're seeing the evidence of that. Like, I mean, uh, it's pretty cliche to think of Nawaz Sharif as a sort of, you know, center right, you know, business friendly, wants to sort of. Uh, established sort of a strong economic relations with India type of guy but the cliche is there for a reason that, that he is that type of guy and uh, he's tried a couple of times now and uh, in vastly different circumstances uh, once in the late 90s and once in the mid 2010s and uh, he's sort of uh, he's failed both times I think it's fair to say why he's failed maybe we can talk about but it's I think it's fair to say that he's failed uh constitutionally and legally and politically he has about as much power as one could reasonably expect in a multi-party, multi-ethnic poor democracy as Pakistan. Like the fact is that the PMLN dominated 2013 in a way that you can't really expect ruling parties in states like Pakistan to dominate. So he's sort of starting off from a position that like he's not starting off from zero like in in ways that other leaders might like he has a lot of advantages and even with those advantages he's failed so i think it's quite telling that somebody with that uh with those preferences and those inclinations towards india and a fair amount of political legal power uh is constantly stymied or at least stymied at least a couple of times now uh and i think you know the uh, i think the answer to your question is not much i don't think there's much that a civilian leader in 2016 can do to uh, and just offer, a quick can offer to India, uh, which which is then from the military perspective, given that you know you've got a retaliation that took place, whether the degree to which is under question, but how does that affect, or does it affect the army's calculus at all in terms of maybe what India is trying to have is more unpredictability in what was you know sort of an established pattern. I think that I think you hit the nail uh, right on the head. I think uh, India uh, found itself in an equilibrium uh, which it did not want to find itself in. Uh, it was sort of stuck where it could, you know, never really react. At least the last 
15 years, the evidence in the last 15 years was that it couldn't really react to sort of uh, terrorism in some way emanating from across the border. We can talk about the extent to which it emanates from across the border, but uh, they feel it emanates from across the border. Let's put it that way. So uh, they, they sort of found themselves straight-jacketed a couple of times, and uh, I don't think they appreciated that, and they've uh, they've tried to give themselves a lot of options and most of those sort of attempts I think have failed but this uh, was a success this was definitely a success from their point of view in that they sort of changed the pattern and as you suggest as your question suggests they gave the Pakistani uh, strategic sort of leadership something to think about and in answer your question of how that's going to affect them I think only time will tell I, we can sort of guess and you know sort of have educated guesses but I think it's way too early to think about how the Pakistani army is going to strategically now incorporate this sort of new like evidence or new sort of strategy from the Indian side. So let me try to, <clears throat> I want to, you know, because I'm not a professor at a fancy university with a big degree. Neither so I don't. I. <laughs> <laughs> no, come on now, don't be humble. That's for me. Um, so uh, if I was to tweet out your position uh, without your authorization, I'd say, as Bart says, you know, Kashmir is not really a problem. Pakistan is at fault uh, at everything. It's a really good thing that India pretends to have conducted surgical strikes. And uh, Jehind, is that, is that, is that about? All right, like, you'll have to accompany the tweet with a picture of me with this orange sort of you know, saffron, maybe, uh, uh, no look I mean uh, uh, you can borrow fussies because he has a he has an extra one uh, right fussy I think it's obviously true India, that's for rainy days India has yeah. made a lot of mistakes uh, and not just mistakes mistakes uh, implies sort of uh, a lack of uh, deliberate sort of deliberate deliberateness uh, uh, India has made a lot of mistakes and done a lot of bad things deliberately in Kashmir uh, we don't need me to say that. We can read that in history books. We can read that in op-ed columns. We can read that in memoirs uh, by journalists. Uh, the question for me, you know, is Kashmir as a as a separatist dispute within India and then Kashmir as an interstate dispute. And uh, they're obviously related. Uh, many separatist disputes have a sort of very strong external angle and that's sort of where my... Uh, the bulk of my research is really focused on. Uh, but it's not helpful. That, I mean, sort of where I come, my, the angle from which I come is that it's, it's not helpful to have inter, an interstate dispute on top of a sort of domestic separatist dispute because it really complicates, it complicates a lot of things and most obviously uh, it just adds to, it just adds to violence. It's just, it just results in more violence to, especially targeted against the, separatist groups. So, if you care about Kashmiris, the, the well-being of Kashmiris and the welfare of Kashmiris, and you hope that they are not subject to uh, the sort of brute violence, yeah. brute violence of the Indian state, then there's not, there's no greater step that Pakistan can take than sort of taking its hands off and saying, this is your problem and we'll help you find a solution. There's nothing better that Pakistan can do for the Kashmiris. So, I mean, I guess... Uh, you know, just to explore that a little further, is part of the problem that when you have, uh, like, a local... Uh, I mean, if you want to be Indian about it, we'll call it an, ins an insurgency. <laughs> if you want to, you know, which, of course, you know, Fussy likes that. Uh, but but if you want to be fair about it, it's a genuine 
it is a major political crisis, right? Yes. Uh, that's the most neutral way of, of, of so without taking a position of any sort, yes. is that there's a there's this localized political crisis, and it's layered upon either the political crisis is on top of the international problem, or the international problem is on top of, and you know we can debate that yes. too. But is one of the problems that you're referring to a problem of agency that when Pakistan starts talking about it, suddenly, you, have we, do you think that Pakistanis are undermining the agency and the autonomy of Kashmiri voices in engaging in a struggle for self-determination? Is that, is that part of the problem? So, so that's a good question. I think that is part of it. And you hit, so there's a couple of things to explore that come out of your question. The first is that it is definitely the case that when Pakistan materially supports uh, any sort of rebellion in Kashmir, like actually giving training and arms and sanctuary, uh, that that really changes the dynamics of sort of rebellion and insurgency. Like, that's just a fact. Like, the way we intervened in the early 90s, you know, the, then that sort of gave in to the the sort of Fedayeen era and then that gave into Kargil and then that gave into the spectacular terrorism of 01, 02 and 08. So the point is that we sort of, we create problems for Kashmiris when we support them in certain ways. Now you made the point, you know, the way you frame your question was, you know, voicing support for them. I have no problem whatsoever with the Pakistani state and Pakistani citizens and the Pakistani sort of military and body politic and what have you, voicing political and diplomatic support for the Kashmiri movement and Kashmiri sort of freedom, go for it. I mean, we should support whoever we want. I mean, the Palestinians want a state, we should support them. Uh, the Uyghurs in China want a state, maybe we don't support them. The Baloch in Pakistan want a state, maybe we don't support them, but fine. Whatever. Everybody's a hypocrite, I understand. But it is the case that when we materially support the insurgency, we make things much tougher for the Kashmiris. Uh, the other thing I would say is, it's obviously not the case that uh, Pakistan bears sole responsibility uh, for how Kashmiris are seen by the Indian state and by the Indian body politic. Uh, they have their own sort of uh, baggage from partition, just as we do. And they have their own sort of symbolic attachment to Kashmir, just as we do. Uh, so Kashmir means something to the Indian nation. It means something to the Indian constitution. Uh, the idea that, you know, it's the only Muslim majority state in the secular state and uh, uh, in the secular country and they're not going to let, you know, people secede just based on based on religion. They, they said no to the Sikhs in Punjab. They said no to the Christians in the Northeast. They say no to the Muslims in the Northwest. Uh, and so uh, they have, like, there's reasons other than Pakistan that they don't want Kashmir to become independent. But I'm just saying we make it a lot more complicated for the Kashmiri people. So just another question is that, you know, with Pakistan's uh, sort of focus on diplomacy as well, at least the stated one right now. There seems to be a lot of commentary that, you know, one of the problems is Pakistan can't get its narrative together or that it is someone who suffers from, you know, skewed lens around the world. But one of the things is that for, as, as an observer, uh, as an academic, is narrative at all the issue? Is the issue action or, you know, sort of domestic support, which is larger. And then a secondary question to this is, is that one of the reasons that sometimes is stated, which is that, you know, there's a priority of elimination when it comes to non-state actors within the country, and that there's just too much going on on one front 
uh, for a new front, which is relatively also popular mm-hmm. to be taken on. I mean, how much credence do you give to that? So before uh, I sort of. Before I answer yeah. the second question, can you just clarify the first question when you were talking about narrative and success, uh, success and failure of what, like the Pakistani position on the international stage? Was that what you were talking about? Yes, yes, yes. Like it, it sometimes it comes down to that maybe we're not just getting our arguments right. Whereas is the question really is is it really is there space for argument or is there one which looks at you know concrete actions at home which would do much more than having a well structured argument but towards what argument for what though i'm just confused about that uh, towards uh, its position on kashmir right now i see they uh, go on kashmir i believe that we have basically zero credibility on the international stage uh, we have zero credibility mainly because of history because uh, We've tried to win Kashmir in any number of ways. We've tried sort of, uh, you know, a military assault. We've tried sort of sending military irregulars, but not wearing our uniform. Sometimes they did wear our uniform. We've tried mobilizing local Kashmiris. We've tried sending Pashtun tribesmen. I mean, we've tried a lot. Wait, wait. Okay, so can I just contest just from the get-go? Uh, uh, please. Um, the UN Human Rights Commission in Geneva has written a letter to both the Indian and the Pakistani governments based on Pakistan's advocacy of just the last few weeks mm-hmm. and what's been happening there. Mm-hmm. One, the OIC contact group in Kashmir, there's like 40 plus countries. Now, I'm not suggesting that they're all supporting Pakistan's position. Right. But the foreign ministers of a number of countries attended the OIC contact group meeting. I, I think two for sure. You're talking about the Azerbaijan, OIC? Yeah. Azerbaijan and Turkey. Their foreign ministers sat at, on the sidelines of the UN discussing the Kashmir issue. The point is not, I'm not suggesting that Pakistan A is either right or B is getting its way. What I'm suggesting is the, the declaration that, you know, there's zero credibility is not, it's not borne out by the facts. Okay. Uh, I mean, I... Understood. I take the point. Uh, what I would say, okay, let me re- revise the statement. Uh... Pakistan and Pakistan enjoys zero credibility with actors that matter in international politics. So the OIC is basically a meaningless institution and nobody really cares about it and it doesn't really have any import. Uh, so I believe it doesn't really matter what what the OIC thinks. What the OIC thinks of what, I mean that's a fair that's a fair point. Yeah, I think there's a lot of, I think uh, there's a lot of countries I mean, I guess Turkey, you know, would be a little bit more important than, than the OIC. Fair enough, but uh, the day I see Turkey actually meaningfully support Pakistan's position on Kashmir, I mean, China doesn't support... So, so do you think, do you so, think so Turkey would ever do that? Say that again? Do you think Turkey would ever support Pakistan's position on Kashmir? Who knows? I mean, I, like, I don't But what's your... Uh, under Erdogan, maybe, maybe, because he sort of, sort of has this sort of Muslim nationalist bent, and you could sort of make the argument that he might sort of see the struggle sort of in this larger narrative. I guess what I'm trying to get at uh-huh. as an, is there's a narrative of... So I was going to respond to Fassi's question. Go ahead. So, uh, I, Although, you know, you don't have to. <laughs> you, you can just... I think I should. Go ahead. Go uh, I think, uh, so to go back to Fassi's question, which was, you know, do we suffer from a, a sort of a narrative issue? And I, my, my answer to that is no. I don't think we suffer from a sort of a lack of a... Uh, you know, ability co- to co- tell our story, a coherent narrative yeah, or a consistent yeah. narrative. I think the fact is that we have a fairly coherent narrative. Uh, it's internally consistent, but it is not accepted by the world because uh, the action upon which that narrative is based has resulted in sort of complete failure. Right? Like in that, we've tried and we failed any number of times. Uh, 
the other thing is that uh, you know it's not like you know it's not like Pakistan enjoys it's not like Pakistan is a neutral observer when it comes to sort of separatist violence in South Asia sort of generally but then especially in Kashmir right and this goes back to what I was saying earlier like if you're actually giving them money and arms and training and sanctuary that really complicates your ability to make uh, sort of intellectually honest and sort of morally and ethically based uh, narrative that might be more sort of well, better received in the international arena what? because you can say then hey we're not doing this for ourselves we're not doing this because we want this land we're doing this because we really care about the Kashmiri people and look please pay attention and that might actually I'm not saying it it guarantees results but I believe that if it'd you be care more about, potent yeah, yeah. certainly it, it wouldn't be it wouldn't decrease the likelihood of success where we are right now but but let me again yeah. just to yeah. you yeah. know yeah. and I want you to Obviously, Fussy is desperate for you to answer his question, so we want to <laughs> we, we want to give you that opportunity. You just said morally and ethically, Madhulab. I mean, really, like, do countries really like? No. Is that how? Inter- because no. I thought I don't. I'm so. pretty sure you're the one that taught me this. Like, I actually I remember you lecturing me. I agree that countries don't. You know, international relations doesn't work like that. I agree. But that's my point. Is that if you take that view, okay, you know, unke bura Fine. Like if that's no, but who really So I mean, you know, before we had this technical problem, what I was saying was I, I interrupted you, and I never do that to anyone, <laughs> uh, but for the first time ever. Yeah. And I said, look, the, you know, this idea that moral and ethical, like that there should be a moral and ethical, ethical argument. I mean, I think I'm pretty sure, in fact, that it's, it, it's a discussion or a series of discussions I've had with you in which you've convinced me that international, because you have a PhD in international relations and you teach international relations to PhD students now and you do it in a credible place like Washington, D.C. or, or its environs. And, and so isn't it true that countries don't behave on the basis of ethics and morals? Most countries don't, uh, it's especially the big countries don't. But my point is if that is the... If that is your launching, if that is your departure departure point, like I'm not saying all states behave that way, or even I think that way. I'm saying if you, you know, Musharraf Zaidi, or you, the listener of How to Pakistan, approaches the Kashmir issue from a sort of a moral concern or ethical concern for the well-being of Kashmiri people, uh, then th- our stand will go a lot further and be. Uh, yeah, but that's not going to happen because we're dealing with a nation state. Let me let me let me frame it this way. As a, I, I didn't understand that. That's not going to happen if we... As in, I don't think we're going to be able to convince anybody that our motivation, even ourselves, that our motivation, and when I say our, I'm talking about Pakistan as a country. State. Yes, yes, yes. The state's motivation is moral ethical. But but let me... But you can, no. My point is, agar aap, if, you, if you make a big show and tell of saying, we no longer harbor revisionist ends for this, we no longer want Kashmiri... I mean, aap, you, you still can't you know clearly and sort of very explicitly say we do not want the accession of Kashmir think about how far that would go in sort of world opinion if Pakistan just says yeah but you have a bunch of I mean I just wrote this and I got in trouble with a lot of my friends at the foreign office but you have a bunch of essentially people that are in terms of intellectual rigor Dinosaurs well, at the foreign office, so and so so nobody's going to come up with the brilliant idea that actually we need to change our position well, and that it won't undermine our standing at the UN. In fact, it'll raise it. But let's set that aside for a second. Okay. Let's simplify it, yeah. right? Because not everybody has a PhD in IR or has a friend who's a PhD in IR <laughs> like me. So let's pretend that I've never met you. Right. I, I just want 
you know, when you say, what do you want? I want Pakistan to win, man. Like, I, I just, like, I really, I want my country, I want to land at airports and be treated not with any particular respect, but not yeah. with any indignity. Right. I want the name of my country to appear in newspapers only on the back pages when we're selling shit. You know, right. like, I don't, I don't. Right. So, how do we get there? What I mean, you are trained in this. I mean, <laughs> I'm not trained in that. <laughs> come on, you're international relations. You know how relations work. You've, you've studied separatist stuff. I'm we not ha- we. In that. Uh, I study ethnic conflict and nationalism. I'm not trained in how to make a state more successful. I don't think anybody's trained in that. If they were, uh, they'd be all right. Let's put it this way: smart people would come to you to ask your advice on how to. And I think I really like the fact that you framed your argument as uh, if I was PM, because for me. And this is where the, the listener is, I'm going to betray some, some private trust with you by sharing with the listener that one of the kind of long-standing points of argument is, uh, are, you, are we alive to make the world a better place or are we alive to seek the truth? This is an argument I have with journalist friends and it's an argument that I have with academics. Right. And the fact that you said that if I was prime minister means that after a long time, and I, I know you've done it in other situations as well, but you openly thought about a situation in terms of reaching outcomes without, uh, without prejudice to sort of your own position. So I think it's actually a really good idea, and I wish we had a country uh, in which, you know, uh, much like the Indians, where, where they were drawing on their best and brightest. I think that a smart Pakistan would come to you one day and would say, Essen Bhatt, we want to win. And you'd say, what does that mean? And they'd say, look, we're politicians. Don't ask us what that means. Tell us what that means. So, A, tell us what winning looks like yeah. for the Pakistani state. Yeah. And B, and don't give us the whole every kid goes to school and every mother has uh, pills. And, you know, like, of course, human welfare is important. In the realm of international politics and international relations, A, what does winning look like? B, how do we get there? Fassi, is that an okay direction for us to take this in? Yeah. I mean, I think that's a really general question. I think, uh, broadly speaking, you obviously want the sort of safety, security, and prosperity. Uh, obviously, we start from a, you know, like, we start from a certain position. So it's maybe unrealistic to, you know, think, oh, you know, we'd like to be Belgium. And even in Belgium, you know, this terrorist attacks at airports and whatnot. Uh, but uh, what I would say is, this guy's parked right outside. Uh, what I would say is, uh, sort of, Approaching a situation where you're not sort of at war or at the threat of war with, you know, multiple neighbors where, like, you know, you, you don't have to be India's best friend. You don't have to be Afghanistan's best friend. But you can sort of, I mean, there's, there's, a, there's a fair amount of distance between being a best friend and what we are now. And we can just sort of nudge in the direction of best friend without even sort of attempting to get there. Uh we have sound relations with China. We don't really have a whole hell of a lot to worry about when it comes to sort of, you know, Iran wanting some slice of our territory or, you know, anything like that. Afghanistan... Well, you don't... You don't think... doesn't recognize the Durand line. That's true. But Afghanistan is a much weaker power. And uh, I don't think we really have to worry about that. Uh, so, I mean, a, a, a state that's at relative peace with sort of, you know, itself and its, its neighbors would be a start. Uh, that would be winning. You know, I think that would be a start. Okay, so how do we how do we get there? Knowing, and this is where, I guess, and this I just is, like to add a question to this, uh, just supplement with what you've just said is now, from Pakistan's perspective, for example. Yeah. Yeah, you have a sort of uh, military state apparatus which is quite paranoid in some ways. So, 
in in sort of this scenario, it would somehow presume that you know the first tier of unilateral action would come from Pakistan. And so how does one overcome the thought that, okay, if we did stop meddling in Afghanistan, we stopped with India, but they didn't stop, for example, or that, you know, they treated it as it because there is so much distrust that, you know, they wouldn't take it at face value necessarily and set yourself up for maybe some form of strategic weakness later no, on compared a, to you know however bad it is now so how would that really, be overcome yeah. you know the the fear of the first mover yeah. in this particular scenario that's a totally fair and totally reasonable uh, question uh, is it a legitimate worry that ghq has because i can tell you that that is a worry uh, in fact that's probably the principal driver of a lot of bad behavior we that's a separate argument i i, I would dispute that claim of whether sort of that's the primary driver, uh, but we can return to that. Uh, but to, uh, to to get to Fassi's point, I think it's a totally reasonable sort of concern, like, you know, the sort of the unrequited, you know, handshake or whatever, uh, and you sort of don't want to be the sucker and, you know, the classic prisoner's dilemma. Uh, I think fears of that should be mitigated by the fact that, first of all, so, so let's take each country in step. Um, uh, let's think about Afghanistan first. Pakistan... Uh, the population of Afghanistan is, I think, roughly 20-25 million. The population of uh, Pakistan is about 200 million. So right off the bat, you know we're about 10 times bigger. Uh, uh, our economy is, I think, roughly, if if not more than, in fact, I think our economy is even more than 10 times bigger because I think our GDP, GDP is 250 billion. I'm not sure what their GDP 270. is. 270. Uh, uh, Pakistan's army is uh, much stronger than Afghanistan's army, which seems to be fighting itself uh, much more than anybody else. Uh, And we have uh, nuclear weapons. So uh, the idea that Afghanistan is going to, like, hurt us in some, you know, really deep strategic way, I think it's fanciful. Now, can they support, you know, can they give support to you know, Baloch nationalists like they did in the 70s to a limited extent or to uh, even sections of the Taliban like they are doing today? Absolutely. But I would argue the Taliban support uh, is very much a, a retaliation for Pakistan's support of uh, their Afghanistan. Taliban. Uh, and as for the Baloch and Pashtun angle, uh, if, the, if the Pashtun nationalist movement was as significant as the Baloch nationalist movement, I would totally be worried and I would be very fearful uh, of exactly the type of thing that you're saying, where they would sort of destabilize. But unka aur baloch ka itna connection banta nahi hai. So the fact that the Pashtuns are by and large sort of uh, integrated into the Pakistani body politic means that we don't really have, structurally speaking, a whole hell of a lot to worry about when it comes to Afghanistan. Now, with respect to India, it is the case that India is much stronger than us. Uh, and it is also the case that India aspires to be a regional hegemon. Uh, so... It's not like we can sort of necessarily enjoy, you know, super, super warm relations with them, uh, no matter what we try. Uh, but we want to separate sort of, uh, sort of quote unquote, normal security competition in IR, which sort of all states go through, with the type of relationship that we have with them, uh, which is really deep mistrust and really deep rivalry. Uh, and we have to note that India has never uh, sort of, you know, coveted 
major Pakistani territory the way that we've covered Indian territory. Now, you can make the argument that on, in the right wing of India and even nowadays in the mainstream of India, they talk about sort of reclaiming Pakistan, occupied Kashmir and this, this, that, the other. But that's not really a mainstream position. And I don't really believe that the Indian body politic is interested in... Wait a second. Wait, 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 Let me finish. No, 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 no. Let me finish. You can, you can interject once I'm finished. Let me finish. Uh, the Last time you interject, the connection dropped. You're right. So let me just finish. The point I'm making is that the Indian body politic does not aspire for Gilgit Baltistan the way that the Pakistani body politic aspires for Srinagar. Uh, so India has never coveted territory of Pakistan the way Pakistan has coveted territory of India. Now you may say territory is not the be all and end all, and there's other things that they do, and fine. Right, but note that even you know the other things that they do are off. Like 1971, which is you know we can talk about it in depth if you want. I wrote an entire ta- chapter of this in uh, in my dissertation, my book. But the fact of the matter is, India only did that well into sort of once the civil war had already started, and millions of refugees were streaming over. And uh, and the reason I, you didn't want me to interject is because you knew where I was going, and I mean, now you're addressing that. Go ahead. So the point is that. Uh, and, and they, you know, uh, sort of not intervening in the middle of 1971 would have been like, kind of like crazy. Like it's something like even I would ex- like it, it, it's something that we should expect like a state to do. Like if there's like millions of refugees pouring over and the civil war is going on. Uh, but they were not sort of behind. Wait, wait, wait. So when Pakistan, there was millions of refugees yeah. pouring into Afghanistan, uh, pouring into Pakistan from Afghanistan. Pouring into India from no, no, hold on. You just gave the example of East Pakistanis going into India yes. as the justification for, and some clever Indians are now calling it R2P because they want to get in with Samantha Power and Susan Rice, which is, which is hilarious, but okay. It's the original R2P. Great. Fantastic. It's a Canadian concept, by the way, not American. But fine. Let's, let's accept that for a second. But then let's condemn to kingdom come Pakistan's very, very ginger engagement with Kabul uh, that produced what we now know as Pakistan's support for the Quetta Shura and the Afghan Taliban. So how, how is it that in the case of India, it's military intervention and it's sustained showing off about having broken up a country into two is legit and yet Pakistan's ginger engagement with India that, that turned into what we see today, which is uh, what I think is a shameful sort of failure to shut down HQN and uh, a fail, failure to manage uh, and, and suffocate whatever remnants of the Quetta shooter there may be. How are those two... How do you justify one almost and condemn the other? I'm not justifying anything and I'm not condemning anything. It's not what I do and it's not my business to justify or condemn anything. But uh, isn't that what... I, okay, let me, let's let me, put it a different way. Okay. Isn't that what everyone else is doing? Everyone says, oh, good. I mean, essentially you suggested that India should have done what it, it did. No, I, th- uh, I think India's intervention uh, in 1971 made life uh, a hell of a lot worse for the Bengalis. Uh, than they would have been otherwise, at least in the midst of the civil war, uh, in that it sort of created more, sort of uh, created a tougher insurgency, which calls for a tougher counterinsurgency. Uh, but note that in the 1971 case, uh, Pakistan believed that India was Pakistan was treating the 1971 sort of the 1971 movement. Pakistan was treating Bengalis in 1971 as if they were already supported by India, well before they actually were supported by India. You see what I'm saying? We March 25th, we had this mentality that this is an Indian movement. And we, you know, there's 
so much evidence on this, I can't even like begin to describe. Yeah, but there's also evidence that there was Indian support well After, before. No. Well no, before. No, there is zero evidence of that. No, there is none. Wait, there were not, uh, no, Bengali academics were not, were not engaged. Academics? I mean, yeah, I mean, the fact of the matter is, your party, Awami League, won a Pakistani election. Okay, they won a Pakistani election. I'm not, listen, you so, know that I'm not so, making that argument. So like, I, what I'm, but what I am trying to do is to discern what the limits are mm-hmm. of piling on yes. responsibility for South Asian sort of, you know, decay onto Pakistan. Because what it seems like, and I think what we need to, I, I, I genuinely, uh, on, on Bangladesh, I think you know sort of that I, I don't think there's any way that we can justify or even defend what what we did. So I think that that's not the argument one right. is making. Right. Just because we behaved very poorly in 1971, yeah. I guess the, the what I'm trying to contest is the carte blanche that mm-hmm. I see so many people. Indians, I can understand Indians making that, making that analytical error uh, or... Uh, poor judgment but neutral observers or other observers how is what india did okay like india was at least 49% of the problem in in uh, in in the way things evolved from 47 onwards in the, east pakistan no no in in pakistan's pakistan's behavior i guess my my larger sort of complaint with life is that the Indians? No, the Indians are very smart, and uh, and and they have essentially uh, taken every opportunity to gut uh, whatever is left when Pakistan has been doing itself. Pakistan is very good at doing itself, mm-hmm. and every time India sees Pakistan doing itself, it it steps in very artfully, mm-hmm. hands us the knife and the poison and the cyanide, and then claps right. as we ingest it, right. and then walks away and says, oh, you know, these guys. And of course, it's legitimate to say these guys. I mean, these guys, yeah, fine. And so we've already condemned these guys. Let's, yes, the, we, the Pakistanis, terrible mistakes time and time again, whether it's intervention in Kashmir or it's treatment of, you know, East Pakistan and East Pakistanis. But that doesn't, how, do, how does that free us analytically from the responsibility to treat India as it should be treated, which is, if we're fair, some degree of responsibility for what for for stoking cultivating sustaining deepening whatever words you want to use whatever activities you want to use the the dysfunction in in this relationship and in and in the and in the matrix of pakistani behavior like somebody the other day used the word paranoia pakistan's paranoia with respect to india and you kind of were doing the same thing earlier right i mean it's not paranoia india has a record of malign intent and malign actions when it comes to Pakistan. This is not, again, it's not to justify or rationalize our behavior, but our behavior has to be taken in the context of of reality. And the reality is India has not ceded one opportunity to to help Pakistan stick the knife in itself deeper. Okay. Uh, So I have a couple of responses. Uh, my first response concerns the so, so sort of the empirical, you know, juxtaposition of like, you know, what are we doing with the Iran Taliban versus what did they do with at 1971? Uh, and I think we're conflating two different sort of frames, right? One frame is what is sort of as sort of a neutral sort of 
analytical, like what's best for peace in South Asia or whatever type of question. And then one question is one frame is sort of you know what serves the national interest of this country and you know thinking strategically. Uh, and I think we're conflating those two. Uh, my trouble with Pakistan's support of uh, you know uh, elements of the Afghan Taliban, uh, which you wrongly referred to as I think I think you called it marginal or sort of. I don't know what sort of adjective you used. I, I, I used, I, I don't remember either, but it was deliberately, uh, it was it was super diet in terms of the, uh, but, but it's a, not, an accurate descriptor. It hasn't been marginal though, right? No, so, of course not. So that's so that's one issue, is that as, as a sort of neutral observer, I think that's bad for peace. Now why, uh, now on the India 1971 case, uh, the frame might be, well, you know, what's serving the national interest? So what serves the national interest of India in the middle of 1971 when you have refugees pouring across the border and you have an opportunity to cut off a state uh, you would and should take it by the way if you use that same frame for Pakistan in 1991 it the arrow points in the same direction right I mean you can make the claim that Pakistan should have supported the Kashmiri movement in a military way in the early 1990s uh, using that frame but keep in mind then that how different beha- India's behavior was in 1971 versus how different our behavior was in the early 90s. If you want to make that comparison of who served their best strategic interests, let's have that comparison. Because India wanted Bengali independence, whereas we wanted Kashmiri accession. So that completely changed sort of the dynamics that made it way, way less likely that the Kashmiris would succeed. Uh, but that's a whole other issue. So that's one So that's one point. The second point is, you know, you were talking in sort of very, stru- very general terms uh, which is why sort of I'm struggling to come up with a sort of coherent response because you sort of seem to suggest that you know India bears responsibility and I think you use the term 49% and it's not paranoia and this that the other uh, you know I think you can make a reasonable claim that uh, between 1947 and you know even up to the late 70s early 80s mid 80s you can make the claim that Pakistan is threatened by India uh, I wouldn't necessarily have made it, but it's a reasonable claim. Since Pakistan has become a nuclear weapon state with in excess of 200 nuclear weapons, with deterrence holding at even very low level, Pakistan has managed to sort of lower the level of conflict at which deterrence holds better than like most other states, right? In that, basically we've deterred like even 100 soldiers coming across the line of control. And we to there. So the point is that we've deterred conflict to such a low level that, I mean, I think it is paranoia. It is paranoia to think, oh, India is coming after us at every, you know, like, even if India is, you know, not Pakistan's best friend, doesn't want Pakistan's best interest, that's quote-unquote normal. And I think there's sort of ways you can adjust for that. Uh, and to go, to go back to, to sort of circle back to Fussy's point about, you know, uh, the dangers of sort of extending your hand and not sort of, and sort of being the sucker, uh, I think nuclear weapons really mitigates the the dangers of being a sucker. Like, the, what are they going to do? <laughs> they, what are they going to do? Like, this. Well, they're going to give Brahmdad Bukti an Indian passport, and okay. he's going to go around the world. Okay. And and so so okay. So we have Sayyid Salahuddin and Apna Kanamioska. Don't say Yasin Malik. He yeah. hates us. Yasin Malik in friggin' Pakistan, right? So, like, I mean, the fact of the matter is that, like, it cuts both yeah, ways. No, but JKLF and Yasin Malik are actually not sort of pro-Pakistan. But that's, I mean... That's a whole separate issue. The, yeah. They're not pro-India either. That's the point. <laughs> and that's why we support them. I mean, or to the extent that we do. Well, we so, actually, we the, the amount of damage we did to JKLF 
you know, I, I mean, and again, you've studied this, right? I mean, actually, if there was one organization that that had that didn't have the label or the burden of being what we would call Islamist, that had the potency of capturing the imagination of young Kashmiris in 1992, 93, 94, 95, 96, that really could have made a difference. It was probably JKLF and Yasin Malik. And this goes back to what I was saying. I mean, this is the difference between sort of uh, opportunism, which is what India showed in 1971, and sort of this deep-seated revisionism, Jammu Kashmir. If we had employed the same methods that India had employed in 1971, uh, obviously, you know, it's a counterfactual, and so you can't make definitive claims. Uh, but I feel comfortable in saying that there was a much ex ante, there was a much greater likelihood of Kashmir becoming independent. If we had said, yes, we're behind Kashmiri independence and not accession, we're going to support JKLF and not try and sort of uh, split this movement into, uh, uh, we're not going to split this movement into, you know, Islamists who support Pakistan and seculars who support independence and JKLF compassing or Hezbollah Mujahideen compassing and. Who knows? Who knows? Who knows where what the world would have looked like if if Pakistan had not sort of gone about it the way it did? So, do you think that uh, Fasi? Uh, just this is a discussion we've had as well, right? This idea that actually Pakistan isn't as weak as it ends up being, and that somehow this weakness is is a this weakness is an orga- is an inorganic uh, synthesis that that. You know, being defensive globally and, and being on the back foot all the time is really a construct of actions that we've taken, uh, that that things didn't need to be this way. Uh, and that's really where I come at this from, is that... I agree with that, absolutely. I think, uh, even now, I think it's uh, time for introspection when, you know, strategy is up in the air and, you know, the previous equilibrium has been disrupted. It's an opportunity to look at things, and I agree with you. I mean, one of the reasons why we're now finding out that the sway we have, because too much is laid emphasis on where we're at in terms of our geography, but, you know, how long can you drive it, even though we've gotten one advantage uh, from China right now? But I'd like to ask another question, which is now you were speaking about, you know, having a separatist movement and it being severely complicated by interstate rivalries. Now, with Modi's statement on Balochistan, where do you think that is going and how has that shifted the dynamic uh, significantly and also with, you know, the asylum application of Brahmdha? Uh So, the same sort of general framework uh, applies. Uh, I think uh, the more India supports the Baloch, the uh, tougher life is going to be for them because uh, uh, a couple of reasons. Number one, there's sort of this emotional reaction uh, from the state, from the sort of the, tar- the target state, in this case it's Pakistan, which sort of says, you know, you're in bed with our enemy. And so this sort of, you can get this sort of pathological level of violence, like just, you know, the way the, the Ottomans did the Armenians or the way that we did in 1971 or, the, or frankly the way India does in Kashmir. Uh, so uh, you can get sort of pathological violence, but you also get, uh, because the movement becomes stronger or the sort of insurgency becomes stronger, as a result of the support, it requires more violence to defeat it. So uh, the general framework is the same, is that bad things are going to happen to the Baloch as a community, the more India supports them. Uh, now, uh, with regard to Modi's statement specifically and this asylum application and passport, uh, sure, I mean, he's one guy. I mean, I wouldn't want to overstate the importance of one guy. I don't think, it's, like, he doesn't, like, he's wearing, like, Armani suits. 
uh, on Twitter. Like I saw a picture the other. Like he's not. It doesn't seem like. I mean, there's people you have to worry about in an insurgency, and then there's people you don't really have to worry about in an insurgency. And he does not strike me as the type of guy you have to worry about in an insurgency. Uh, with regard to Modi's statement, I think it's troubling because I think it signals. Thank you very much. I think it signals uh, sort of greater support, which I said is bad. It's bad for interstate. It's bad for the relationship between India and Pakistan, as we've seen. But it's also bad, as I suggested, for the Baloch people. The only thing I would say that's slightly different. About India's support of Baloch relative to maybe us in Kashmir or even India in East Pakistan is that it's just simple geography is that they don't share a border, and this is something that even if you read uh, sort of literature by you know Indian security types and their intelligence chiefs and this that the other you know their law retired law officials. Uh, They say in their books very plainly that geography really matters, right? Like you, it's just like simply having that border where you can have a training camp, or you can sort of easily get money across, uh, or you can easily get arms across. Uh, it's just it's a different ball game for India now. Of course, they have quote unquote the whole embassy problem in Afghanistan, uh, but embassies aren't. It's not the same. It's not the same game. You can't play the same game. With embassies, as you can by with your literally just your own territory, and uh, that that I think is borne out uh, in a number of cases, not just in South Asia but also outside South Asia. Now, just another question is that also like given sort of the diplomatic work that's being uh, undertaken right now from Pakistan's end, you know, there's this desire to have the plebiscite and go back to the UN resolution, but the UN resolution itself, I'm just wondering. Is this just you know sort of a play for words in legitimizing? Because the original resolution itself is troubling because it would require Pakistan to de-arm, de-escalate. <laughs> I don't know how it works with Azam, Azad Kashmir. Then it has a secondary option on India following suit, and it would maintain you know a limited number or minimum threshold of troops, and then it would sort of go forward. So what? I mean. You know, when we talk about the plebiscite, we talk about it in very concrete terms, as if it is just a question of self-determination that it will be a vote to challenge and decide the nation's future. Whereas, you know, the actual plebiscite itself doesn't really fit into what's happening today. So, I mean, what's your opinion on that? So, uh, so, so as a as a more general comment, uh, I would say you know the value of referenda and plebiscites. Uh, Especially nowadays, I mean, we've seen plenty of evidence just in 2016. But even before 2016, uh, I would suggest that the value of plebiscites and referenda in sort of gauging the temperature of the public, uh, or sort of serving as a uh, sort of uh, spring for action, is overstated or uh, probably misplaced. Uh, I, I generally think they're kind of a bad idea. In fact. Uh, I just I I have problems with direct democracy, but that's a sort of larger larger issue. Uh, with regard to the plebiscite in Kashmir, uh, yeah, I think you're absolutely right that the UN resolutions that we harken back to in sort of our public statements are obviously problematic from uh, just you know very functional standpoint, which is that we're not going to vac- vacate Kashmir. Uh, so I think pointing to the UN resolutions is just sort of a dead end, uh, not just because. Nobody wants to hear it out there, but also because it doesn't make sense, uh, sort of internally. Uh, that said, the if you separate the issue of sort of you know a plebiscite from the UN resolutions, you also have to understand that the Indian state is, regardless of what 
Pakistan says or regardless of what the UN says is not going to hold a pleb like that ship has sailed in- India is not going to hold a plebiscite in Kashmir that's I mean that's gone I think if Pakistan is looking for diplomatic solutions or uh, sort of uh, plans or you know something on paper that they can build build a sort of political legal case of I think the Musharraf Manmohan Singh four-point plan is something to uh, sort of serve as a basis for discussions. Uh, it's more current, it's more relevant. Uh, it wasn't written in 1947 or whenever. 48, yeah. 48, whatever the case is. Uh, uh, and, it, and it actually is resonant. Like when, when you speak to Kashmiri, uh, Kashmiris, I've spoken to Kashmiris, I've spoken to people who uh, live in Delhi, I've spoken, I've spoken to people who sort of have worked for the Indian government, I've spoken to people who sort of liaise between the Indian government and sort of the Kashmiri nation, quote-unquote, uh, and from different sections of the Indian sort of intelligentsia, I've heard the claim that the four-point plan uh, is something to think about. It's, some, it's, like, it's not something that they sort of automatically, like a, a section of their body politic would rubbish it, but that's fine, they would rubbish anything. It does, it can serve, I think, as a basis for uh, a reasonable discussion. Uh, but I think the whole plebiscite, UN resolution thing, that ship has sailed. What does that say about the, as in, what does it say about the potency or the utility of people who are invested in expressing their unhappiness with the with a given dispensation I mean I'm obviously not comfortable with with the comparisons because there are some fundamental differences this is not a set piece uh, issue of separatism Mm -hmm. it is an international dispute Uh, there you know unless we change the definition of international dispute Kashmir will continue to be that but at the heart of the Kashmir dispute is of course the political problem of a large number of people in a given territory unhappy yes. with uh, with the way things are. Yes. Um, given your sort of study of this, and you know, another person just recently that you know, and I've discussed this with uh, Sri Lanka is another example, and you know, I talked to Moid Yusuf recently about it as well. well. You've studied both, so what? Like, what is the sort of what are the trend lines? What what separates a successful uh, pursuit of more expression, of more political freedom, uh, from uh, what separates the successful ones from, from the ones that aren't so successful? There's just not that many successful ones. Uh, so gain, what are the gain, successful gaining, ones? Gaining, uh, so I'll come to that. Uh, Bangladesh would be my, <laughs> Bangladesh is the What about Pakistan person. itself? That's not really a society. I, just, you can make, I can see why some people call it that. But I mean, the RSS and the Sangvis, I think. You know. <laughs> sure. I mean, the fact is that because India and Pakistan sort of became independent like pretty much at the same time, it doesn't really make sense to say that Pakistan seceded from India. I think it makes more sense to say Pakistan and India were decolonized at the same time from the British Raj. Uh, and I, wow, I, you're such a Benkassimist, man. I never, <laughs> I never took you for a Benkassimist. <laughs> Fussy, we have a Benkassimist, man. I, think, I, I thought you and I had agreed we'd never have a Benkassimist on. <laughs> Aren't we uh, all uh, Indian? This is the first time at heart? everything. Yeah. Is it, isn't everything just India? Uh, Van, Van Maderum? Come on, man. <laughs> I think, uh, <laughs> I think uh, our, uh, I've lost my train of thought. That's good. The, by the way, the ambient noise machine, I think, is doing a really good job. Uh, Fussy, what are you hearing at your end? 
in between, I heard what I thought were people arguing or it was cats and dogs, but now it's perfectly fine. But if you've lost your train of thought... No, 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 no. Fussy, it's okay for you to call me a cat. But for you to refer <laughs> to Professor Dr. Essam Butt as a dog, just because he's violently pro-India and he hates Kashmir and he hates freedom. I mean, this is unacceptable to him. I want you to apologize right now. Uh, listen, Essen, I, I apologize on Fussy's behalf. He, my humblest. He's, I think he's adopted Bin Qasimism from you, and uh, and has decided to go all out. But Essen, just a quick question. I mean, following up on something you said earlier, you know, on Musharraf's four-point plan. I mean, one of the things about that plan is that it seems to be a framework for discussion rather than actually having any workable solution. So even if the four-point plan was implemented, I mean, what would have a solution look like at least back then? What was the thinking? Look, that, uh, the answer to that question relates to the answer to the previous question. Now I actually remember what I was saying, which is that uh, successful secession is just very, very rare. Uh, it's just very, it's very, very rare for a nation to want a state and a state to say yes, sure. <laughs> like that just doesn't happen. It just doesn't happen very often. Uh, and if it does happen, it usually happens. If it is successful, it takes a lot of violence. So the dissolution of Yugoslavia, for instance, uh, is a pretty good example. The uh, birth of Bangladesh is a pretty good example. Uh, who, who were the secessionists in the case of Yugoslavia? Was it the them, Croats or the Serbs? Them, or all of them. All yeah. of them were seceding. From and you studied that as well? That's not in my book, but I okay. studied the, uh, the peaceful secession of Czechoslovakia. Uh, which was one of the very rare cases that were the Slovaks and the Czechs, yeah. And it it was very, one of the very rare cases where it was uh, successful and peaceful. That mm -hmm. that is extremely rare for it to be peaceful. Uh, and the that's reason, the country where the engineers didn't want the others, right? That's the country where the who? Where the engineers didn't want the others. I don't know about it. Is this this is from Václav Havel, right? Yeah. So well, Havel was uh, Havel was sort of a background. He was sort of. He was a nominal figure, but yeah, he was sort of he ma he, he wasn't uh, the driving force. Uh, the main guys were uh, Metriar from the Slovak side and uh, Klaus uh, from the Czech side, uh, and they were only happy to see each other go. And there was sort of weird, sort of idiosyncratic issues going on. We can talk about the Czech case in depth if you want. But my point overall is that nations gaining states in the modern era is just very rare. It just doesn't happen. And the Palestinians are an example. The Bulochs are an example. The Kashmiris are. It just doesn't happen. Uh, so I think any uh, vision of Kashmir being an independent state is probably uh, expecting too much. I, I, I could be proven wrong, uh, of course. Uh, but I think the trend line, you asked about the trend line. The trend line is that Kashmir is never going to be an independent state. Now, the four-point plan in Kashmir does not call for it to be an independent state. It's just sort of weird, like... You know, like autonomous region. Yeah, halfway house with like the border doesn't really matter, and you walk across, and both sides have some sort of like dominion over it. And I think that would be a weird, funky experiment. But it's worth trying. Like it's worth like, you know, I, I you Jerusalem, know, Jerusalem was divided. You know, Northern Ireland is divided in weird ways. Jerusalem is divided in weird ways. There's weird ways to divide things, and we should think about them. Uh, and uh, yeah, I, I'd, I'd sort of leave it there. I mean, I think that's a good place to leave it because what it suggests is that there is uh, potentially a happy ending uh, for Pakistan, for India, and for Kashmir, for Kashmir, 
in which the worst possible outcome for each party can be avoided whilst concurrently uh, denying each party the best possible outcome. Uh, the, the, I guess the, the larger question is, will the politics, uh, particularly the internal politics of Pakistan, uh, with all the political players, not just the ones you know that belong to political parties, with all of them in the picture, will there be a point in time when things come together to create the space for people like you to help inform how this discussion should go? Uh, so the first thing I would say is, and this is not, uh, I, I want to emphasize this is not a function of modesty. People like me don't matter, not just in Pakistan, but anywhere. Uh, nobody gives a shit what academics think, and that's just not how the world works. When you think, when you think about the reasons that politicians and bureaucrats and generals make the decisions that they do, when you think about their incentive structure, what an academic says is very low down on the totem pole in terms of their sort of, like, guiding sort of life. So I would just areas. quickly... So, that, so, so that's the first point. The second point is, you don't need people like me, the sort of... Uh, the ideas are there. Like, the ideas are there. Like, Musharraf has talked about this. Manmohan Singh has talked about this. Nawaz Sharif has talked about this. Vajpayee talked about this. Right? Like, the ideas are there. You don't need me to put them there. Like, you need uh, some people to get out of the way. I think we know which people those are. Uh... And yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, as I said, the ideas are there. You don't need academics to put forth the ideas. The ideas are already in the political space. And uh, people like Manmohan Singh and uh, General Pilrez Musharraf and uh, Prime Minister Vajpayee and Prime Minister Nawaz Sharif, amongst others, amongst his sort of advisors and bureaucrats and uh, civil servants, uh, some of whom even might be on this conversation, uh, have contributed to. And those ideas are there. So, uh, you know, you just need uh, people to... Uh, sort of work with them and other people to sort of get out of the way I think uh, there's some pretty uh, hard stumbling blocks towards the sort of realization of those plans uh, and I think we know who those stumbling blocks are uh, at least I think I know maybe you guys disagree uh, but uh, who knows I mean who knows if they get out of the way what the world looks like that, that was the whole I mean to circle back to the start of the conversation I mean that was really the point of that thought experiment uh, that I raised in that blog post was what does the world look like in which we don't have these stumbling blocks? Because I think that's a, uh, I think that's a good question to ask. I think, uh, I think it's a good question for us to to end today's conversation on as well. Fussy, do you have anything? Uh... No, I just like to thank Essen. I think it was fascinating speaking to you, and I'm really happy you took the time out to speak to us. And I hope, uh, you know, the listeners also uh, enjoyed it. And I know I certainly did. So thank you so much, Essen. Thank you, Fassi. And thank you, Musharraf, for having me. I had a really good time talking to you guys. Uh, really honored to be here. Thanks. No, it was a great, great pleasure. Uh, you uh, did not disappoint. Um, and we hope that uh, our listeners uh, were not disappointed either. Um, we look forward to continuing the conversation with you and with friends like Essen in the future. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Khuda Hafiz from me, Musharraf Zaidi. Goodbye, and uh, till the next podcast. I hope you have a good time coming your way. Khuda Hafiz.